welcome to DevCast, brought to you by Devril Smith, the right people. DevCast is where property meets people, industry figures, news and views, what it takes to be your best. So sit back, earphones on, and enjoy this edition of DevCast. Welcome to DevCast, Devil Space audio series, which holds exclusive and thought-provoking interviews with professionals from the property industry. My name is Andrew Devil Smith. I'm CEO and founder of Devil Smith. And for this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the most successful real estate agents in the UK, who has had a massive impact on the industry as we know it. The one and only Mr. Dominic Grace, head of London Residential Development at Savills. After 37 years at the firm, as the specialists of all things new and residential, who better to talk to than the man himself and get his take on the past, the present and the future. Dominic, thanks ever so much for joining me today. How are you? Very good, thanks, Andrew. And thanks for that completely over the top introduction. <laughs> I can only disappoint your audience moving forward. <laughs> oh, no, that's nonsense. I mean, you're, I think um, uh, we've known each other a while now, but, but, but I seem to remember a couple of years ago you winning a, a legend award. I was there to watch it happen. Well, you were there. Well, do you know what? That was yeah, one of my sort of, I'd say, prouder moments. I actually won the um, Resi Awards Property Personality of the Year uh, a few years back. And yeah, I went up and collected the prize at the, um, uh, you know, the Grosvenor House Hotel in front of 1,500 odd people, which was great. Yeah, no, very proud moment. Thank you. Well, it was well deserved. I thought it was I thought it was legend of the decade or or, or legend, you know, just the, the legend of the sector. So I'm surprised it was actually of the year. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, actually, what made me particularly proud, I suppose, in many ways was that, you know, not, not surprisingly, perhaps people like Tony Pidgeley, uh, and other real titans rather than charlatans like me ha had been <laughs> recognised. But actually, joking aside, what I particularly appreciated, and I think I made the point on the night, actually, with my sort of 30 seconds acceptance speech, was that it was great that people who, um, if you like, the advisors and consultants were being recognised. Uh, rather than perhaps the developers, um, which is great. I, you know, I like to think we do have a bit of a role to play out there. Well, that's a really good point. And as 37, 37 years at Savills, there must have been opportunities to, to you over the years. Come on, Dom, come and join us. Come, come, you know, jump over the fence. And cl clearly you never have. So, yeah, well, I, I never have. And truthfully, I... I, I haven't really been approached credibly by someone. And do you know what? When you get to my age, Andrew, you sort of are able to recognise your strengths and weaknesses. And in my case, there are many weaknesses. But I've always been quite realistic about myself. I'm not sure that I would have made a great developer, actually. And, you know, I've obviously worked with many of the you know, brilliant developers uh, over the years. Um, and I, particularly, I'll tell you what, one bit, and I was thinking about this, uh, you know, because you sent me some sort of, questions and whatever that we might cover the the land bit buying the sites bit um i'm not sure i i i would have had the right i don't know whatever it takes to be really good at that bit and if you look at people like tony pidgeley sadly no longer with us and i don't know steve morgan at red road they were always really good at buying the sites and of course without a site it doesn't matter how good you are at all the rest of it you can't uh, sort of apply it 
So I've always been quite realistic about that bit, but perhaps I could have done something, I don't know, in sales and marketing for a house builder. Anyway, the fact is they never asked me and, I, you know, I've been kept pretty busy and pretty happy at Savile. So no reason for well, me to jump. It's not too there. late. <laughs> it's not too late. But um, uh, let's just let's dig into that a little bit more, if you don't mind. What does it take, in your view, to, to be brilliant at buying sites? What, what's the bit you're lacking, which, you know, well, I don't know if I'm lucky. I just don't know if I, yeah, I, I've never done it, so I don't know. Um, wow, you've got to be um, hard, thick-skinned and super hard and not steep and, you know, just not, uh, you know, put up with a lot of pushback, as it were. Um, and um, I suppose being a bit brutal about it, you've got to be a bit sneaky along the way. Uh, I'm not saying dishonest, but you've got to be that. And I'm not saying I'm I'm not tenacious. I like to think I am actually, but I'm just not sure. Overall, if you look at all the bits and pieces you have to bring together to be a successful, or to let's say to, to produce a successful development rather than be a successful developer per se, I think that's the bit where I would have struggled most. I think um, where I, on the other hand, have the greatest strengths is around the product, what it should look like, who might buy it, for how much, how you add value, how you best market it. I'd say I feel that's much more my comfort zone. Well, we're going to talk about all of this kind of stuff, but I'm, because you're such a fountain of knowledge, I'm going to, I've, we've already started off at a good pace, but I want to just keep pumping the questions at you. What's the best land deal you ever saw happen, even if you weren't brokering it? Well, one's seen a, a few over the years. And of course, as we all know in property, there's a hell of a lot of luck involved and timing. But, um, you know, looking back, I think, uh, I, I mean, the deal I was involved with was the sale of the Olympic Village um, that Delancey with Qatari money uh, picked up. I always thought that was, I mean, no, that was free, openly marketed and we had other interests, but I always thought, you know what, that's a good deal. Um, it just felt right. The average price per unit, the opportunity to add more to it, just the, uh, you know, the uh, revitalization of the East End, the connectivity of it, of the site. I always thought that was a, a great deal. Well done. It was also awesome, of course, to um, witness what the Candies did, um, buying the site that is now, um, uh, you know, One High Park, used to be Bowwater House, an ugly 70s or 60s, I think it was, uh, office block straddling um, a, a junction in, in Knightsbridge. And the vision that Nick and Christian Candy brought to that caught everyone completely by surprise. No agent, doesn't matter if you were Knight, Frank, Savills, top of your game, no one would have foreseen what they did. Full marks to them. So let's hear a bit more about this story then. So, so you get called in, I presume, by, by uh, the brothers, and they said, we're going to... We're gonna build the the sexiest building on the planet for the highest prices. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they did. Was. <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, do you know what we we've been involved um, at the Knightsbridge, uh, another project um, which had set new levels. You know, I think dizzy heights of two thousand pounds per square foot. You know, which fifteen years ago seemed pretty nosebleed. Now, wow, you know, dime a dozen. Um, and, you know, the level of the ambition that Chris and Nick had, um, then I had to say no one um, sort of believed it quite other than them, but they did a really good job in sort of pulling us all along. And, uh, well, you know, history's proven them to be very right, good on them. It was a bit of a moment in time, I had to say, um, whether or not you could 
do that again. So let's say that site came on the market now. Could one push that up to, I don't know, 10,000 pounds a square foot? Um, I don't know. Uh, and perhaps we never will know. That was just one of those moments in time when there was an enormous weight of money, foreign money in particular, hitting London and London, cool Britannia, all that, you know, just some good stars aligned there. But people are still talking about it, right? I mean, to, to me on my travels, it's still <clears throat> talked about as the kind of marker, one Hyde Park as, as, as kind of a, 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 um, a, a seal of quality and um, location, all kinds of things. But it still seems to be the one that gets referenced the most. Yeah, no, I think that's right, because it, it just was so, so iconic, so high profile. Um, you know, it, it, some of the, pro, the profile was sort of bad, you know, it, uh, you know, it's quite difficult to justify, isn't it? Particularly in this rather more caring and sharing age we live in now. Um, the sort of extravagance of it all. But, you know, hey, uh, there we go. That's history. Well, I'm going to take you white, right white back. Sorry, I'm, trying, I'm doing my best uh, uh, radio presenter impression. But now I'm going to take you right back now. 37 years ago, you uh, were a young, very young man. Very, very young man. Yeah, um, I, I was. Yeah, that's when I started at Savills in June 1984. I had actually worked for about two and a half, three years for a small firm called Friend and Falk, initially in Fulham and then uh, in their Brompton Road office. And that's when I was very, very lucky. And I have to say, I, I so mean it when people ask me about my career, how much luck has been involved. And not least of all, the luckiest break of all was Savills coming from knocking on the door. Um, and I joined the firm at the most fantastic time, you know, and it's still on one hell of a ride uh, now. Um, but, you know, it was just beginning to sort of peel off its rather tweedy tracksuit um, and really go for it. Um, and back then it was obviously a partnership, um, very, um, very different profile to what it's got today. I mean, Savills now is the biggest firm of property professionals in the UK. Uh, well over 6,000 people in the UK alone and obviously a huge business internationally as well so very very uh, different in many ways but something we chat a lot about in Savills is our culture which I think was maybe something else you wanted to chat about Andrew um, and that's super mm. special at Savills and there's something about the DNA perhaps you want, might want to call it at Savills that, that I've witnessed throughout that just does make it very special and has contributed hugely to its past and current success. How do you describe it? Do you know what? We, we sort of, uh, you know, navel gaze a bit about that ourselves internally, but it's definitely there. Um, it's very difficult to describe. It is um, ultimately, it's a slightly boring thing to say, it's about the people and the continuity uh, and, and people, new people coming on board. It's not to say that, you know, we're very straight jacketed in the type of people, anything but. In fact, largely it's been really big personalities that have shaped uh, the culture. Um, but there is something, I don't know, maybe you call it a, a sort of family thing, a tie that just does make it su a super special place. Um, and that has contributed massively uh, to its success. Yeah, well, I, 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 <clears throat> I get to, from an outsider looking in, it's clear that there's a super strong culture. And I, I th family is a good way of describing it from the people that I've met, you know, that it's, they, they, their eyes light up when they talk about the 20, 30 years that they've spent there and the, the relationships that they've built. You know, it's always about the, the people I talk to, they say it's the relationships rather than the properties that they've sold or, you know, in the end. 
Yeah, no, yeah, oh, so much so. And look, I, I think, you know, we all know that the property industry is, is a huge amount about relationships. Um, a lot of people would regard that as relationships you might have with your clients. But of course, in a firm like Savills, it's that and the relationships you have internally as well. And particularly when the firm gets so big, um, perpetuating that uh, sort of culture gets, gets more challenging for senior management today. But they're very aware of that and very... Uh, you know, keen that we do make sure that um, all the new arrivals get that sort of um, the Savills vibe inculcated into them. <laughs> okay, so if I were a young whippersnapper, which sadly I'm not, but if I were lucky enough to be one and, and it was my first day at Savills HQ and they, you know, they sat me next to you, what, what would be the piece of advice for me to, to reach the dizzy heights that you have? Well, um, you know, I, I would say, and this is a slightly boring answer of almost with you, Andrew, is you just got to keep learning. Um, I think I was quite lucky in some ways. I've been slightly paranoid that I, I, I'm badly educated. You know, I, I didn't like you, didn't go to university, um, certainly uh, haven't got any property qualifications. And it's always perhaps slightly haunted me. So uh, I've had to compensate by constantly learning. But I think that stood me in pretty good stead. Um, and again, slightly boring thing to say, the day you think you know it all is the day you're sort of dead in the water. Um, I'd also say as a bit of advice to anyone, in fact, doing anything in any business, for God's sake, make sure that by the time you're 30, you're convinced that you really enjoy what you're doing. Because if you don't, by the time you get to 40, you'll be miserable and 50, really miserable. So and within the property world, there's so much you can do. Um, and so I, I advise to anyone, really make sure by the time you get to 30, you're really doing part of the, the business, wherever it is, that you really um, find interesting. Because then you're interested in learning, which makes you better at your job, more able to be insightful, and I suppose ultimately happy, which is where, where we all want to be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. That's great advice. But back, so, okay, so I'm pointing this back at you, as they say. What, what, which... You're going to, what do you love most about your job? Well, it is how varied it is. I was very lucky actually to, I mean, I joined Savills as, as a resi agent doing, uh, selling uh, flats out of, um, this was back in the day when Savills was still a partnership and the partners had, in their view, taken a massive punt in opening a dedicated London residential office in Sloane Street, which is still where we are today uh, with that office. But genuinely, the partners were, were sort of worried about taking that risk. It now seems laughable, doesn't it? But um, anyway, I joined uh, to uh, sell flats out of that office. We sold flats out uh, you know, across London. And I was very lucky to work under a woman called Victoria Mitchell, who's a bit of a legend in Savills and very much, again, part of someone who's sort of instilled a lot of the DNA that's got us to where we are today. Um, a real enthusiast, great visionary. Um, and she sent me down to the Docklands to open an office in 1986. Well, um, boy, if you think Docklands was all about development uh, now, back then it was, I mean, it was sort of the wild east. And so I went completely naively down to the Docklands, knowing very, very little about development, but it, it plunged me into the world of residential development, gained very lucky break because no disrespect to those that have carved a, a you know, long and successful career as, as a pure resi agent. But if I'm honest with you, Andrew, I think I would have sort of died a thousand deaths. I found doing the development work so stimulating and it is every day. It's ever evolving and and for me i find it much more stimulating than just pure agency work 
Um, so you, I didn't know that actually. I didn't know that you headed to the Docklands. So um, how old were you at the time? I think it's always... Well, it, it, you know, scarily young. And I talked about Victoria Mitchell. I mean, talk about sort of, uh, you know, taking a punt. <laughs> um, I was age 26 uh, when I went down to the Docklands. Really very, I'd only been at Savills for two years um, and I was completely clueless. But I was very lucky. She was very inspirational. And, you know, what? it was a brave new world. And arguably no one was an expert down there. So, you know, you, you, you could just sort of knuckle down and become one, if you like. But what it did do, I was down there for five years. Um, in fact, we opened our office uh, on the highway um, in, in the sort of top end of Wapping, um, a very busy road that connects Tower Hill through to um, Limehouse. And it was at the height of the riots at News International, the print works just behind our office. And it was a complete war zone. Every night there were riots down there and I'd come in and sort of tiptoe my way uh, over half bricks to open up the office when you know the office um, <laughs> luckily the, the guy who fitted the office out um, had put bulletproof glass in um, and so the window was never broken but it was it was a pretty tough time down there but god I learned a lot huge amount very quickly which you know st stood me in pretty good stead. Okay so what was the first scheme around that time that really um, that you remember what's the one that stands out for, for, for the right or wrong reasons I suppose but yeah, well, it, it was, the, you know, some crazy times down there, you know, the whole off plan buying scene, which now is very ingrained in the residential development market, was was sort of pretty well unknown until, um, the, you know, the mid 80s down in the Docklands, where investors started piling in. It was the beginning of the sort of build to let uh, market. Um, and uh, it, it um, you know, projects were you know, hundreds of units were being sold off plan in one weekend it was a really unheard of sort of stuff it's also the beginning of marketing um, projects in Asia uh, it does go back that far um, and there were projects like New Crane Wharf a really cool warehouse building that saw an unusual joint venture between Gerald Ronson uh, and the Conran partnership um, but that was a really cool warehouse conversion and, and you know again very special scheme but of course the backdrop to, uh, to a lot of it was the development of Canary Wharf uh, you know the commercial district itself which was a huge uh, driver of interest uh, down there and it's amazing to think that that started with just the Docklands Light Railway as its infrastructure you know it wasn't uh, for a good few years before the Jubilee line opened to service it uh, amazing to think that anyone would have started uh, a project that big um, uh, at that stage the nuclear and 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 so so you're in the Docklands for five years and then what happened they they, they you you got pulled yeah well, I, I i got um well do you know what those fights i i went down there in 1986 and by 91 of course uh, a, a proper recession and, and at the risk of sounding a bit like one of those sort of Monty Python sketches where you know one makes out that life was much tougher back in the day genuinely the early 90s were um, were really tough and in terms of downturns in the market far more severe than anything that we've seen since actually including ironically what's gone on around Covid um, it's hard to believe that, but that was the case. L literally, the phone didn't ring. <laughs> Tumbleweed almost did literally blow through your office. It was really tough, particularly down in the Docklands. And dare I say, it, we very nearly closed our Docklands office, which would have been very sad. Um, but it, it was that tough. Anyway, I went back to Grosvenor Hill, our then head office, 
um, and started doing uh, development work covering all over London as well as the Docklands then. And in fact, it got so quiet. I said to Victoria Mitchell, still my boss then, do you know what? I'm going to go back to Sloan Street, if it's all right, Victoria, and go back to selling flats again. I just so needed the, the stimulus. So that's what I did. I went back to Sloan Street, started selling flats again, and then gradually things perked up. And I guess by 93, we, you know, the life started to come back into the market. And that's when our London residential development team uh, first started being forged. And people like Tim Whitney, still absolute legend in our team on the land side, uh, who had taken over from me in the Docklands, came and joined me in Sloan Street. Um, and others like Ed Lewis uh, came along afterwards, and you know we we built a, a great team. Yeah, you certainly did. And and um, what would you say was the were the were the trends? So that ninety three to when you know what 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 happened next? It was a grim recession, and then. Well, and then it spooled up again. And, and and boy, have we learned how resilient London is, and how quickly, particularly the prime uh, parts of London, sort of bounce back. Um, but look, we, we, we then had, a, you know, there was some rocky moments along the way, but on the whole, the combination of, I guess, Savile's brand growing and, the, and again, uh, I make no bones about it, uh, quite a bit of the success that perhaps I've enjoyed and others in the team have enjoyed has been part of the wider success of Savile's, the creation of that brand. Um, sure, we, we've contributed to it, uh, we like to think, uh, and, but it's definitely helped. Um, and indeed, uh, particularly the growth of our commercial business has been very helpful and connections with the money and indeed a lot of development that has spins out of you know, uh, commercial buildings being converted uh, into residential, etc. Um, so it's just been a pretty good ride ever since. Um, obviously, the financial crash, uh, you know, wasn't great. But again, if you look at for certainly central London, it, it, you know the recession really only lasted about nine months for us and then off we went again uh fun enough we were obviously marketing one Hyde park then so we could monitor it very closely and um interesting times interesting times so I, I i guess i've got to ask you with all of this experience um of market cycles and recessions where are we with covid i mean it's april 21 how are you calling the market well, you know, it's just been amazing the way absolutely everyone, including our research colleagues, were, have been staggered by the resilience of the market, not just London, the, the whole market. And it, it is defying gravity. And, and Lucian Cook, the head of our residential research, said it's unprecedented, which I think we'd all understand how you can have a, a residential market that's growing in value and activity, whilst uh, at the national level, the economy is shrinking at, at the greatest rate we've ever seen. Uh, it doesn't add up. And some people speculate, well, it can't last. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's such uncharted waters. I, I do think it, it, it can't fly forever this high. And I think in my mind, I think it is going to bob bobble along um, at a rate that um, is, is certainly compared to recent history will be quite modest growth. The good news is uh, and I hope this is, you know, proven to be correct. I don't think anyone's talking about a major meltdown in the market because we know how what bad news that is for the sort of wider economy and confidence generally. Um, but what's for sure is COVID uh, is going to pose and continue to pose questions for a long time, the way we live, the way we work, and that's going to uh, sort of go on for a long time. And sadly, when we can all come out to play at the end of June, um, it, 
it's not just going to be back to normal. I think we know that it's going to be a long time before we know what the new normal looks like and what the knock-ons from all these things are. But it's going to be interesting and throws up lots of opportunities as well. <laughs> so, um, if I wish, if I, if I had half a million pounds and I, I wanted to deploy it into real estate, where would you where would you advise? Where would you take me to buy? What would I buy, um, and why? Right, half a million pounds. Um, well, I would. Um, I think I, I would. I probably wouldn't buy in London, if I'm honest with you, um, uh, yet, until we know a bit more about how things look. I, I'd buy somewhere where uh, it's still, you know, London's accessible, but perhaps slightly out of the conventional historical um, can commuter belt, somewhere where you can add a bit of value. Um, and if you get the basics right, I think a bit of um, character sounds an obvious thing to say, but off, uh, you know, important to get that bit right, a bit of heritage. I think you almost can't go wrong with that. Now, I think there's a very deep market for, you know, something with a bit of country idyll in it. And you still can buy for half a million pounds. You can get a reasonable amount of bang for your buck, which sadly in most parts of London, you can't. Which brings me to my next question. If I had two million pounds, <laughs> which new scheme in London would you take me to and why? Well, yeah, good question that. Um, a scheme that's been around for a while, but I still really rate uh, as one that I think has got the credentials to, to mean it, it, it's, it's a, it'll stand the test of time, is Television Centre in White City. Really great project. Ironically, that's got lots of heritage hardwired into it. Um, and just where it is in, in town, what's going on immediately around it. The regeneration of White City um, is in the hands of very few um, landowners, all of whom are developing out very hard. Barclay Group, Westfield, uh, and uh, obviously Imperial College as well. So that area is going to be completely transformed in five years. And of course, it's got connectivity as well. Yeah, well... <laughs> Dominic, who would you say um, has most influenced your career? Yeah, no, it's an interesting one, that. I think lots of people have. Um, I've, I've mentioned Victoria Mitchell as an extraordinary uh, lady um, under whom I was very lucky to work. You know, she, um, she demonstrated to me that just uh, lots of enthusiasm uh, you can go quite a long way. That's not the demeaning of Victoria, who was also a great visionary, but and also hugely tenacious. But I do think that um, clients and indeed colleagues warm to enthusiasm. Um, so I, 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 I'd like to think I'm an enthusiast. I think I am. Um, and I warm to enthusiasts. Uh, no two ways about it. And I love innovation and new ideas. Uh, what's the best new idea you've seen in the last year and a half, couple of wow. years? Wow. Well, do you know what? I, I've made quite a study and always have done, not just because it's fashionable now to be interested in innovation and technology and modern methods construction, et cetera. Genuinely, I've had a deep-rooted interest in that for years. And there are so many um, areas of our business that are so clunky and inefficient um, yeah. And I, I'm genuinely one of those people that believes that we're going to see, and this is where COVID really will have accelerated things, a very rapid period of evolution. 
to mean that we just do things much more slickly. And you're getting some great stars aligning to prompt this now at a government level, a societal level, and indeed the actual technology around to make this happen. Um, and uh, I, I'm very keen to get stuck into that. Uh, it really excites me. And uh, um, I think, uh, you know, even at my stage in life, uh, I might see some of this stuff happen, which is great. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to, I'm going to prod a bit harder here because I think, we, well, which bits are, so the inefficient bits need fixing via tech, would you say? Yes, via tech and but the sensible adoption of it, and it probably sort of the biggest challenge for the industry is that, um, you know, the decision makers being a bit harsh, a lot of them still are or still display rather dinosaur tendencies. It's understandable, you know, you've always done it that way. Why wouldn't you? And in many ways, the market itself, the strength of the market means that you haven't had to adopt the, the, the innovation. You know, you haven't felt that pressure. And indeed, perhaps there haven't been the players, let's say the developers or agents who've really moved the dial to mean that everyone has to respond to that. One might say that perhaps in the agency world, for example, the online agents just haven't made enough traction to prompt that wholesale change that lots of people would have forecast 15 years ago might have happened. You know, I can remember our marketing, our head of marketing at Savills must have been at least 15 years ago saying, you know what, we're going to have to close all our high street offices. You don't need an office anymore. And he was right. One arguably didn't, but the, the timing was wrong. <laughs> and the recognition in that world of the human touch and the importance of that, um, we're still learning a lot. So I don't think there's any one bit of tech. I think it's going to be a combination of things that come together and the harnessing of the tech. I, I suppose one, one particular strand, though, one might call it, is this golden thread of digital information that people like Dame Judith Hackett has highlighted um, in her report after the Grenfell fire. Um, I can see that emerging. So the digital twin, all, all that sort of talk. I think we're tantalizingly close to that happening now. Um, and I, I think that will then prompt lots of uh, technology that's out there around, I don't know, um, uh, digital logbooks for properties and and that sort of thing will now start to happen on the back of that. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's uh, I'm sure you know better than I on that front. But I still, uh, when I I'm trying to buy a house at the moment, and it's just bonkers how difficult it is to actually achieve. You know, when you, uh, all the parties appear to be willing, and yet the system seems to be unwilling. Yeah, well. On that, a lot of it is a digital world, and I, I take a keen interest in it. And a lot of it is there's so many different processes that have to be gone through. I don't know, you may be getting a mortgage, and the process you have to go through the sort of effective form filling and the duplication and the proving that you are who you are and all that sort of stuff. And likewise, for the lawyer to do all that. And you can just see all of it could come together. And I mean, as it happens, I'm helping a business called Your Keys, for example. Uh, run by a very impressive chap called Ricardo Iannucci Dawson. And he's looking to take on that, you know, all that tedious stuff. He's got a platform now. And I would see that that would be, you know, could really help you, the agent, the lawyer, your mortgage broker in, in due course. Uh, it's coming. Yeah, I'm sure it's coming. And, and just on the same theme, but back to the bricks and mortar, if you like, what do you see the trends of London development, the new build schemes, what, what do you think we'll see in in the next five to ten years that 
we haven't already. Good point. Um, I think we might see a sort of slightly more back to basics when it comes to amenities. I think there's been a bit of an arms race. I, don't, I think the agents have maybe guilty, if I'm honest with you, sort of egging the clients on. Um, so, oh, you've got to have a wine cooler room. You've got to have a cigar humidor room. You've got to have all these sort of gizmos, even in quite mainstream project. And do you know what? You don't. And the capital cost of delivering the stuff and then particularly the service charge burden that then obviously yeah. hits uh, a buyer or landlord. Um, I think some lessons being learned there. And I also hope that this is less true of the prime market, which is always going to be, have an element, a big element of bespoke and what, what have you. But for the more mainstream market, the um, uh, bringing forward of modern methods of construction and slick design will, I think, mean that buyers will at last have much more choice. I mean, it's a joke. I mean, lots of people have observed this, that when you buy a Mini, my wife and I bought a new Mini a couple of years ago, and, you know, the, the choice was mind-blowing, and you could choose it, <laughs> and it arrived, all done. Now, um, I don't know if you saw, there was a documentary series uh, a couple of years ago where they featured a Mini coming off the production line every 64 seconds or something, and everyone had been bespoke chosen by the buyer so if the house building industry could just get somewhere close to that brilliant and the sort of buyer power will dictate increasingly that the market will demand that so i look forward to that yeah i think we can just see we can see signs of that happening right and um is it it's got to be logistically much more complicated in the middle of a major city like london as opposed to a um, you know, a regional scheme in Reading, let's say, whereby you might build in Brownfield. Does, does that affect um, the, the, the ability for the market to scale? The, the pre, the yeah, no, it's a good point. I, I think the sort of higher up the price point you go, the less, uh, you know, um, opportunity for, to, to, to benefit from the sort of modern methods of construction where an element of repetition and volume drives efficiencies and it hopefully one day some cost savings so yeah you're right um it, it's more the mainstream market that will benefit from that so crudely a sort of aston martins to use the car analogy are still going to be pretty well handmade but your minis um uh and you know so uh, you know let's say stuff around from uh, less than 800 pounds a square foot to use a london uh, uh point of reference much more scope to see those efficiencies uh, being brought to bear I want to put you on the spot a little bit here and ask you, who, who are the ones, it's quite helpful actually to me doing my job, but who are the ones to watch? <laughs> who are the, the next generation developers? If you were, if you were, if you were um, a, an investor, who would you buy shares in? Right. Um, good point. And I think, it, you know, ironically, uh, with a sad passing of Tony Pidgey, it almost marked a line uh, in the sand, as it were, um, for, for perhaps the opportunity for a new type of developer to emerge. It poses a question, will you get again the Steve Morgans, Tony Pidgeys, you know, big house builder characters? Um, or or is, is it a different world we're going to live in now? Um, and um, I don't know. I, I think there's huge opportunity for a new breed of developer, perhaps one that brings together that technology and also can win the sort of environmental race that's obviously so much to the fore now. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm watching people like Richard Meyer, who's uh, set up uh, stories, and his his team. I think that they're going about doing things in a in a really uh, the right approach, where 
it's very apparent that they really mean what they say. And I think um, as a developer, um, sort of greenwashing and purporting to be very whatever, you're just not going to get away with it now. You're going to have to live it, breathe it and deliver it. So that certainly prompts a, a new type of developer, one might say. Um, there are some interesting characters emerging. And I tell you what, what they're going to need is a lot of luck um, and perhaps um, have the right sort of sugar daddies to who, can, you know, who, who are going to sort of support them through the process. Um, because it is but the, the barriers to entry, certainly for a developer, are, are very tough, for sure. Is it tough? Is it tough an album 30, 40 years ago when Mr. Yeah, Pitchley without and... a doubt, without a doubt, much tougher. Um, and much tougher at every stage, you know, for the sort of developer that just doing the one-off house every year, because that's basically, you can still make pretty good money if you get it right, uh, doing one or two units a year, much tougher to get in into that stage. The planning process, which we hope is obviously being transformed um, and to work more in favor of, of, of sort of SME developers. There's lots of talk uh, about that at government circles. It's very difficult, truthfully, for government to, to move, to make it that, that much easier. Um, but I also think the availability of finance for uh, is got easier, ironically. Of course, the, the, the financial crash 15 odd years ago, uh, you know, suddenly there was no money. Well, now there's lots of money, but not so many opportunities. And I think with, uh, you know, weaker returns and other forms of investment, you're going to see um, private equity and stuff, you know, taking more risks crudely with people who are going to do things in a new way. And what, where do you, where, what role do you see the housing associations playing over the next 10 to 15 years? And clearly... Yeah, well, they, they've grown enormously in profile and the blurring of the edges, uh, you know, uh, historically in my, in my game between you know, private developers and housing associations. Now, you know, housing associations are some of our biggest clients delivering, uh, you know, private uh, shared ownership or whatever type of product. Uh, obviously, they a lot of them have really, um, take, you know, got very competitive in the market. Some may say have been a bit naive, if I'm honest with you, um, have overpaid. I mean, it's always been a bit galling, um, you know, when my colleagues who might be selling a plot of land, uh, uh, if you like opening those envelopes or emails at 12 noon on a Friday when the deadline comes in. And, a ha and a, a, the house builders have all been at sort of X level or there or thereabouts. And then that the housing association has been at Y, which is like sort of 40% more and you wince and think, wow, okay, they perhaps don't need to make so much profit, but, you know, and that's proven to be the case. They have been naive and paid too much for stuff. Um, but uh, they've got a very important role to play um, moving forward. And particularly when it comes to more affordable housing, which, you know, that, that issue is not going to go away. They've got a huge role to play. Yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, no doubt about that. Um, let me take you back to Savills. And it's your career at Savills. Um, you talked about Victoria Mitchell. Who, and, and you, I'm sure you will, who's the greatest agent you've seen in action? You know, just out, not business leader, not operational capability, people doing deals in the market. Well, there, you know, there's the great Gary Hersham at Beecham Estates who often gets cited and Gary would love me mentioning him, but he's awesome. He's a legend for a pure out and out resi agent. He's exceptional. 
just doesn't let go and seems to sniff out that someone might be selling, buying, whatever. Awesome character and still doing it. He, he's older than me uh, and still doing it and uh, awesome. So out and out resi agent, Gary, you've got to mention. I've worked with some great colleagues who likewise are fantastic on that front. I've got to, when it comes back to sort of winning the mandate in the development game or perhaps particularly winning the new homes or advisory piece, I'd say Victoria Mitchell was exceptional because she just exuded so much positivity um, to clients that they just couldn't say no. Um, she also was, you know, um, very good on market knowledge, very good and always promoted to us that you've got to just not know the market. You've got to know what's happening out there in the city, in the world. You've got to read the Sunday papers, da da da, you know so that you can relate to the client's wider issues, perhaps around interest rates or uh, foreign exchange rates, whatever it might be. Um, she was exceptional, learned a lot from her. Yeah, I can tell. And you're not the first person to reference her in such high esteem. Um, I've heard nothing but sort of amazing things about her. Sadly, never met her, so, you know. No, maybe she's I, still around. Maybe I can get her on this one day. Um, the best deal you've done. Dominic, what, what's the one as and when you hang up that telephone and hopefully no time soon, but when you do, what's, what's the one deal you'll look back on as being the one you're proudest of? Yeah, do you know, I, I struggle a bit with this one because um, I don't know, I, I'm not sure it's a deal, but I've always done the, the buzz of a winning a mandate because really in our business you've got to win the mandate uh so in many ways that's the the most important thing because without it you haven't got a business um and i love pitching for business in a very challenging situation and sort of working out what's going to win it and then delivering that advice and then watching the client warm to your insights as much as your enthusiasm and that positivity because that only gets you so far you've got to back it up with insights and, you know, along the way, there have been quite a few pitches where I've really enjoyed getting that and just seeing the client respond to that. That's what sort of has particularly turned me on rather than necessarily one single property transaction, as it were. No, that makes sense. But uh, can I push you for a name of the, the, you know, what was the instruction you were proudest to win? Yeah, um, it was great winning one Hyde Park. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I think a lot of things might say, well, it was always going to go joint agency, Knight, Frank, Savills. Maybe it was, but, you know, we put a lot in, into winning that. Um, uh, the Knight's Bridge, uh, again, another project I mentioned earlier. These are high profile ones. But along the way, particularly some of the sort of um, more out there ones, you know, like, like for example, getting involved in, um, let's say, Brent Cross South. Uh, the Argent related project where we had the pitch and, you know, that's much more about regeneration and what have you really enjoyed, uh, you know, getting one's head around that Canada water for British land. That was another really um, interesting pitch for us to do where we had to convey, you know, uh, our vision uh, for that project and hope that that uh, resonated with the client. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> well, You've, you've won so many it's unfair for me to to really ask you to name one but I, i'm gonna i'm gonna switch tack a little bit best three developers you yeah. had the privilege to work with well i've got to say if asked which i quite don't know who, who do i think the best developer in london is i would say that ballymore 
uh, what Sean Moran and now obviously the next generation of the Moran family have done has been fantastic. Um, and the reason I say that is that um, they, 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 the alignment of vision, and they've done some great, you know, really bold stuff in regeneration areas where you've had to create a brand uh, and start again, you know, and also that the premium they've achieved on the back of doing that has been absolutely awesome. So that alignment of vision and articulating that vision to their design team, the architects, and working with some great architects along the way, and then in turn their um, agents. Um, we've been privileged to work on some great stuff with them. Uh, they always, and they really own that vision um, in a way that so many big uh, uh, projects go wrong because the client doesn't really, isn't clear about the vision. So day one, that vision is fuzzy everything else just gets fuzzier and lost along the way and you don't do the best job or end up with the best uh, scheme and uh, I must say the, the guys at Ballymore being exceptionally good at that I really rate Killian Hurley and that team at Mount Anvil doing fantastic work and Killian's very very canny operator and again uh, what do you know a next generation uh, leading that business increasingly as well um, and Killian's just brilliant at, at um, his insights in the market and also, particularly, I think he's been fantastic at uh, working now and has got a fantastic track record for working with housing associations and local authorities. And those joint ventures, I think, are going to be very important for uh, developers moving forward. Um, then um, at a sort of smaller scale, I've really enjoyed working with the guys at First Base, uh, Elliot Lipton and Barry Jessup. You know, they were a startup. Uh, with a clear vision of sort of doing things a bit differently and it really enjoyed uh, working with them over the years but look there have been lots of them and then you've got really big characters like Harry Handelsman of Manhattan Loft Company what he did back in you know 30 years ago to um, show what you could do again uh, revitalizing old buildings and stuff fantastic and then really tough half, uh, taskmasters uh, like Andrew Wadsworth of the Jacobs Island Company um, uh, fantastic client incredibly demanding but um boy did he have vision those guys are slightly rare in the market now those really visionary developers uh, i hope we get more of them if i'm honest with you well well you you and i both and um well it's great to see the first two the celtic uh, the celtic tiger seems to be uh, alive and well from from the sounds of things um in the immediate term dominic i know how busy you are so i i i, I I could sit here and rattle off questions all day long, but you've kindly given me a, um, an hour of your time. And I don't know if you know, before we wrap up, what we do is we, we ask a few quick fire questions. Are you game? Go for it. And, and I should slip in that I've changed, I've changed them today because I, I, I had a little look and I thought, no, we'll, 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 we'll tweak these a little bit. Go on, ambush me. <laughs> <laughs> Rugby or cricket? Ah, that's an easy one for me. Got to be cricket. Do you want to elaborate? Because um... uh, well, it's not just because my great great grandfather's W.G. Grace, um, but that maybe helps a bit. No, but I, I genuinely uh, I love the game of cricket. I'm chairman of Swinbrook Cricket Club down here in West Oxfordshire, um, and I think it's a yeah, I love it. Love everything about it. Look, rugby is a great game as, as well, but I had to say it's got utterly brutal in recent years. I know there's much commentary around that. Um, sadly, though, um, cricket is sort of dying at grassroots level, and we do need a renaissance to make sure it survives. Well, I sent my two boys, because they're on Easter holidays at the moment, I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old, I sent them off to cricket camp yesterday, and it was snowing. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, ah, uh, uh, right. Well, no wonder it's dying a glass. <laughs> yes, that doesn't help. That doesn't uh, fire the enthusiasm of 11 and nine year olds or whatever. Yeah, no, uh, unfortunate that. But no, uh, it, definitely cricket, given the choice. It's a great story. Um, ketchup or mayonnaise? Well, like a bit of both, actually. Depends, of course, doesn't it? Um, I've got to have mayo with chips every time over, over ketchup. But if it's a really nice Cumberland sausage, you've got to have some ketchup with that, haven't you? <laughs> well, I, I agree you have, but that's, that's kind of sitting on the fence. And if I gave yeah. you one bottle for the rest of your life, what <laughs> colour would it be? I think I'd probably go with mayo. There you are. Um, the 80s or the 90s, Dominic? Well, I think I've got to go with 80s because it's nearer the 70s, which is really where it's at for me, if you're talking musically anyway. Um, yeah. Um, well, I'm talking musically now. I always ask this one, Bowie or the Beatles? Well, for anyone who knows me, this is complete slam dunk. I have been, all, what do I say, all my life, ever since he was around, um, a massive David Bowie fan. Um, absolute legend as far as I'm concerned so much so that I even murdered rebel rebel to the assembled throng at my 60th birthday party at the end of um uh, well yeah 18 months ago when you could still have parties uh brilliant David Bowie very sad loss to the world <laughs> yeah I agree I agree um and my final question if you could own any property in the world which one would it be and why what would you do with it well, you know, I, I'm going to slightly cop out on this one, Andrew, because um, what I'd love to do, because this is a real challenge, I've always been incredibly um, impressed by people who build their own home from scratch. Ironic, given that I've obviously been involved in residential development work all my career, um, because, you know what, you can only blame yourself if you get it wrong. But what I'd love to do is to, given the perfect plot, is to build the perfect country house. Uh, knowing what I know about the way I live, personally, it's, it's obviously going to be personal, and the way I've sort of, you know, we brought up our three kids and stuff, what would have been the perfect house with all the right things in the right place? And it, it would be a fantastic project to do, I think. Uh, so it's a bit of a cop-out, I'm afraid. But that's, that's my no, answer. No, it's not. <laughs> we might have gotten a scoop. I think you, you, they might be, you, you might be um, cooking, hatching a plan. No, no, no plan. No, I'm very lotto to live in a lovely old farmhouse in the Cotswolds here. Um, but I think uh, too late to do that. And the kids have pretty well flown the nest now. So, uh, but to have created that would have been fantastic. Um, and it'd be, it's a great challenge to do it now, even because, well, for the next few decades to enjoy, why not? Well, Dominic, can I just thank you sincerely for um, your time today? But, but, but probably more importantly, you've been very, very supportive of me and and, and of our firm over the years. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And it's just been a real pleasure to watch you and your team in action. I, I've learned a lot from, from a little bit of a distance, but really huge respect for what you've done. And, and long may that continue, you know, just keep doing what you do. Well, thank you. And look, I, I will sort of echo the bromance side of this, Andrew. No, genuinely super impressed what you've done um, in much shorter time than I've done it, dare I say. And, you know, long live the success for you. I think actually genuinely great opportunities for you in the emerging market because uh, there's going to be all sorts of new types of recruitment uh, required around ESG and whatever. And I think also the world of just, um, you know, the more professional areas, if you like, 
of purely uh, RICS uh, type qualifications. I think that, that there's going to be some erosion of that now. New skills are going to be required, and which opens up lots of opportunities for you guys. So go for it. Well, thank you. And um, I'll see you soon for uh, uh, a cheeky something and some uh, chips and mayo. Look forward to that. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. You can join the DS movement by visiting ds.devilsmith.com and you will receive the latest Deadcast episode direct to your inbox.